On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, while while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and and Moses The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke on it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on the mountain to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many will perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. The Lord spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, of the, fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. So over the past 13 years, Laura and I have taken many, many different trips. We've taken long trips, we've taken short trips, and when we've added kids to the equation on these long trips, there's always this perennial question that comes up very, very frequently in the car. And that question is? Very good. So you've heard it as well. Or you yourself have said it. You know, it's constantly, no more than you get out of the driveway. It's, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You're, you're three hours into it. And you know, you got another, and you've just told them, all right, we're stopping at McDonald's. We've got another two hours to go. And you get on the road again and it's, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I remember a few, I think it was our last trip, we were traveling together and Isaac asked the question, are we there yet? And to my surprise, uh, Grace firmly replied, and I think she has heard it before, when we get there, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, right? It's kind of this, are you serious? You're asking the question again? It's kind of, I think she's heard her parents say, we'll get there when we get there. Well, the reality is in our study we are there. We've arrived at our location and Israel will not move for the rest of this book. They will stay here. We, we, we have not arrived in the promised land, but in chapter 3 verse 12, God made a promise, a very clear promise to Moses. He said this, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the book of Exodus will bring the people no farther. It's not going to bring them to the promised land. We're not going to bring them over the, the Jordan River and they're going to be on the other side. We're not going to hear the stories of, of Jericho and the, the breaking down of the wall. We're not going to hear the story of the destruction of all these heathen nations. We are going no farther. The books of Numbers and Deuteronomy will record the remaining story of Moses and the people's journey through the wilderness. Exodus 19 marks the halfway point in this book. And from here, God will impact for the Israelite people what kind of people, what kind of community they are going to be. It's going to be an identity time. God is going to be shaping. This is who you are. God will give his people his law and explain his rules for how do they live their life. He will give them instructions on how to construct the tabernacle and what is required for true, holy worship. The division of our series will look for the remaining uh, chapters like this. 
The God who commands will be chapters 19 through 24. God's commandments going out to his people. And then in chapters 25 to 33, we are going to see a God who is holy. Through all the the various rules and expectations, you are going to see the holiness of our God. And then you're going to see in chapters 34 to 40, a God who is near to his people. It is in the commands of God and everything that surrounds them that we learn about two concepts that should not and do not normally go together. The holiness of God and the nearness of God. They're not two normal concepts that go together. Holiness, otherness, perfectness, total whiteness of God's perfections and God's nearness to broken people. We are going to unpack that over the next couple of months and we are going to be introduced to some very foundational aspects when it comes to who God is and his relationship with his people. We are going to see who God is, who we are, and therefore what is required in light of this difference. In other words, there are sweeping, eternal, redemptive, and frightening realities that God is not like us. God is not like us. So first, foundational reality is this. The first one is this. You can put it up there. Who God is. We, we need to really understand who is this God. Until this time, God has dwelt in a pillar of light and in a a pillar of smoke by day and by night. He has powerfully delivered his people and he has miraculously provided for them each step along the way. But through all the miracles, God was not ever near or close. He was not really dwelling amongst them. He was a, a distant pillar So coming to the mountain, God is going to change that all. The events at the base of Mount Sinai would change all of this. God is about to reveal himself to his people. And in in verses 1 and 2, set the context for this. About three months after leaving Egypt... The Israelites make their lodging at the base of Mount Sinai. The beginning phrase in verse 3 is particularly important. Moses went up to God. And if we read through that too quickly, you're going to miss the whole thing. An imperfect, broken man, a murderer, went up to God. Frequently, the The worship of God is pictured as something that involves going up. You can look at uh, Psalm 24. In fact, there are 15 psalms in the Bible, Psalms 120 through 134, that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And, And the people of Israel would sing these psalms as they were going up to Jerusalem as they were ascending the hill of the Lord. But don't miss the the significance of this very basic setup. God is on a mountain while the people are below. And while Moses was on the mountain, God spoke to him. And what he said in verses 3 through 6 is extremely important. It is a preamble 
to a covenant that God is going to make with his people. And it says a lot about God. First, it tells us that God reminded them that about the exodus. He's taking them out and what he did to the Egyptians and what he did for them. Don't miss what God said. I brought you myself. I brought you out of Egypt. I did this work. Remember, the exodus became the defining moment for Israel and a relationship with God. God was his, their redeemer. His, he saved them. He took them out of bondage, out of slavery. And God was their deliverer. This was a defining moment. They were under this terrible bondage. And God delivered them out. And God's relationship with Israel and with all human beings in the future would be based on God's decisive and unqualified deliverance. In other words, God rescued his people apart from their efforts. There was nothing that they did. Apart from their own efforts, God delivered them. They were slaves. They had absolutely no hope whatsoever. They had no power to get out. They were under bondage, yet God delivered them. The second thing that we see here is that God invited the people into a covenantal relationship with himself. It was God inviting them. The basis of this relationship was God's grace to them in delivering them from Egypt. But understanding this relationship required obedience on their part. For many of us, obedience is a kind of a four-letter word, a nasty word. You want me to obey? You really want me to obey? Should I not be my own sovereign, my own king, my own ruler? I determine what is best for me? Here, understanding this relationship required obedience on their part. And this will become a very basic part of the biblical ethic. If you call yourself a, a follower of Jesus Christ, your first, one of your primary desires should be that of obeying God in what he says for your whole life. The totality of your life. You call yourself a Christ follower, but yet are not obedient in these little pieces. There's something that needs to be brought into line with God's desire. A right response to grace is obedience. A right response to grace is obedience. Because God is gracious. Obedience flowing from God's overwhelming graciousness will be a foundational way that people relate to God. If they understand God's kindness, they will be obedient. God's endgame was not just relief from slavery. He didn't want to just relieve them from being under the oppression of Pharaoh and all of the nation of, of Egypt. He wanted to show them a better way to live. And God is going to transform them. He's going to change their whole DNA of how they view their world, how they view their relationship with God, and how they live in this world and with one another. 
The third thing that we are going to see is that God marked the people of Israel as his treasured possession, a treasured possession among all the people. They are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant that you see in, in Genesis 12, where, where God told Abraham that all the people on earth are going to be blessed because of you. You are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. God chose Israel as his own people in order to bless the world, and God kept his promises. There's nothing innately special about these people, and yet God set his love on them to bless the world. Think about the implications for you. God has set his love upon you. For what? To bless the world. And of course, the, the greatest blessing was Christ, right? And I think that God still has a plan for the people of Israel, and I'm not sure how that's all going to work out. But today, the church has been the means by which God has mediated the gospel in the New Testament. Fourthly, there's an important statement in verse 5 which summarizes most of uh, Exodus 19 and 20. And it is about all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. The God on this mountain is not one of many gods. He is the only God. He is the creator God and everything belongs to him. He alone is sovereign. He alone rules as the king of the universe. And I'm not sure that I can overemphasize the importance of this point. He alone is the sovereign, the king of all. I can't overemphasize this because what, if you underemphasize this, this puts you or anybody else on the throne. But by emphasizing that he alone, the entire world is mine. I created all things. Therefore, who has the proper place on the throne of your life, of your dreams, of your desires, of your wants, your cravings? of your gifts, your skills, your talents, your resources. He alone is sovereign. Understanding the phrase, all the earth is mine, is, in my view, foundational for understanding the entire Bible. All the earth is mine. And that includes you. All the earth is mine. But it comes, it's especially important and foundational when it comes to the required obedience in Exodus chapter 20. God as creator and sovereign of all things has sweeping implications for all of us. Whether you are new to the faith 
or whether you have been in the faith your entire life or you are investigating for the first time and you're not really sure you're a believer in Jesus Christ and all this stuff that's found in the Bible. It has sweeping implications. And here are a few examples. What right does God have to define what is right and wrong? What right does God have to define right and wrong? Well, if he is sovereign, the ruler of all, he has every right. How can we trust God that his way is the best way? If you choose to not follow the law, will there be consequences? Well, if he is truly king and he has set this out for our good, I'll let you answer the question. And if God acts in a way that doesn't seem fair or understandable to you or comfortable or the, the easiest for you, what will you do? If your starting point is all the earth belongs to God, then it changes how you view everything. Absolutely everything. It changes how you view God's election of Israel. It views how you, you look at his commands, his disciplinary actions, his judgments, and how you feel when painful things happen in your life. If your starting point is more about fairness from your vantage point, or about understanding why God does what he does, or about things that uh, having to make sense to you, it will affect everything about your life. God will have to justify himself to you. But if the starting point is God is sovereign, it changes everything. And I cannot emphasize how important and how liberating this truth is. The dynamics at the base of the mountain, including Moses serving as the intermediary and, and this thick cloud, are designed to teach the Israelites a fundamental question. God is not like you. He likes you, but he is not like you. God is not like you. He likes you, but he is not at all like you. And this is where a relationship with God really begins, right? It, with, with a correct understanding of who God is. He is gracious. He is loving. He is a deliverer. But he is holy and he is separate. He is distant. He is transcendent. He is other. And he is not like you. This is the beginning of our relationship with God. But then there comes to the second point. The second major point Connor, you can put up there, is this. Who you are. The second foundational truth is expressed in Exodus 19 is the contrast between God's trans transcendence, his, his otherness, his, his loftiness, his holiness, and the people of Israel. In verses 10 through 24, they are designed to clearly identify that God is remarkably different than his people, and dangerously so. Amazingly different, and dangerously different. After Moses reported to the Lord about the people's initial and positive response, Moses was given instructions on how he was to prepare the people for this encounter with God. 
The encounter with God was, was something special and the people were required to do a number of things, to consecrate themselves, to clean themselves, to set themselves apart. And there's that, that strange little verse, uh, just, it, where is it, if I can see how, and don't be by a woman, right? Or don't go near a woman. A married man is going, mm -hmm. but this, it's a fear that she might be in an unclean time of her, of her monthly period. So we want you to be wholly set apart, totally clean when you approach God. So the encounter with God was going to be special. It was, and they, they had to be clean and consecrated and set apart. Verses 10 and 11 give a good summary. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. So it's like day number one, I'm going to clean you up. Day number two, we're going to double make sure. It's like that double scrubbing, you know. Put, put you through the washer the second time. And let their gar wash their garments and be, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord is going to come down of, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The people were to make special preparations, paying particular attention towards their cleanliness. God will unpack this concept even further in the rest of the law. But it was established from the very beginning here. Human beings are not naturally acceptable to God. Further, there were specific instructions regarding a boundary, a, a fence that was put around, right? The dwelling place of God was not to be touched. The implicit point here is that human beings are unqualified on their own to go even near God. In fact, contact with what was holy by that which is unholy is deadly. Deadly. The people were to assemble at the mountain, but they were not to touch it at all. You see that in 12 and 13, you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up onto the mountain or even to touch the edge of it. I could see my kids, you know, they wanted to, how close can I get to the edge? And God says, don't even touch the edge of it. Don't even get near it at all. No hand shall, whoever touches the mountain, what should happen to him? Put to death. How do you put him to death? Stoned or shot. I don't, that sounds kind of weird, shot. You know, I think a shotgun or a rifle. But, you know, somehow the, they're going to be shot, whether man or beast. None of them, neither man nor beast who touches the mountain, is going to live. And when the mount, uh, trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the edge, not touching it, of the mountain. This lesson will re be repeated even in the construction of the tabernacle with a hidden Ark of the Covenant inside, an inaccessibility of the Holy of Holies, and a limited access to God himself. It's going to be repeated in the details of the law. As you're going to see over the next few months, God will go to great, great lengths in order to show specifically what holiness looks like. And the extent of what will be required will be impossible. 
absolutely impossible for the people to achieve. And that's the point. It's impossible for them to achieve holiness and perfection. And that's the point. So on the third day after the consecration, God came down on the mountain, and the scene must have been absolutely overwhelming for them. You know, Moses has been hyping it up the whole time. Clean up, clean up, clean up. Don't go near that woman. Clean up, clean up, clean up. Get your clothes clean. Everybody perfect, spotless, absolutely. And all of a sudden, there's thundering, and there's lightning, and the, you hear this 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 trumpet coming from the mountain, you see God coming down. And if you've ever seen a kiln, there's a, a smoke uh, thing coming straight up out of this kiln. And it is absolutely overwhelming. God is coming down and it is a scary kind of thing. Scary. The environment around Mount Sinai and the, the content of the law itself was designed to lovingly, hear this, lovingly show the people of Israel that God's requirement of holiness is unbelievably far beyond their ability. God is holy, and they are not. That is the message of this moment, and it will be the message of the law. Now, God will provide the means to resolve the dangerous problem of God's holiness and man's unholiness. But before they can be brought, that can be brought into play, God must first help them understand who they are. The people of Israel have to understand who God is and who they are. And they have to understand this huge chasm between them. To miss this point would be utterly dangerous and tragic for them. Now, if you've ever read the Bible before, God's revelation of himself in such distant and somewhat, sometimes scary categories might seem kind of offensive. Kind of in our North American uh, religion and our Christianity God is kind of this grandfatherly figure, right? He's friendly. He's nice. I, I show up to church to kind of appease him. And he's going to give me gifts like Santa Claus would, right? But if God is really holy, if he really is, and if his holiness is really dangerous for sinful people like you and me, then there, this is an appropriate warning for us. A memorable caution and it's not only justified, it's God's kindness to warn us about his holiness. If you see, see a kid take a butter knife and heading towards a socket or a fork, heading towards a socket, ready to stick it in, what do you do? You go for it. You see what's going to happen. Is that what a loving and kind parent does? Is applaud on the side? Well, you've got to figure out, you know, rules of nature apparently don't apply to you, you know, or the, the rules of electricity don't apply, to, or you're going to find out. No, but God does what? He, he, out of his kindness and his love, he says, no, don't do this. I, I, I refuse to be negligent, but I choose to be kind. So when the Bible tells us that humans are dead in their trespasses, that there is no one righteous, and that the wages of sin is death, and that 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is an act of kindness and an act of love that God tells us this. For God to tell us what he is like and what we are like is unbelievably kind and gracious. What's more, it is very much needed because our natural bent, my natural bent of my heart, your heart, is to believe that you are the exception to rule. We all believe that at one point during this week. And maybe even this morning, I'm the exception. That doesn't really apply to me right now. My life is kind of working out with how I am simply engaging and opposing God. It's working for me, so I'm really the exception to that rule. I know what God says here, but you know what? I am the exception. Don't we all justify ourselves one way or another like that? When it comes to gossip? Lying, stealing. We all kind of believe that we're really not that bad and that God can be even treated casually. Our human position is to treat God lightly and as with obedience as optional. God's holiness as fantasy and our own worth is supreme. In other words, human beings were made, you and I have been made to worship. And due to our fallen condition, we would make ourselves little gods. Therefore, the point of the scene of, on Mount Sinai is simple. Someone greater than you is here. Someone who loves you, but who is not safe for you to treat casually. Someone greater than you is here. So that brings us to the third point that we've got to ask. If God is so other and holy and we are sinful and broken and there is this huge chasm between the holiness and the lovingness of God and our brokenness and our, our natural inclination to worship ourselves and our own desires, what do we do? Building upon the base of who God is and who are, we can better understand the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you look at Exodus uh, 20, 1 through 2, God again summarizes the nature of his relationship with his people. God doesn't establish his law out of thin air. It's based on who he is and what he has done. In other words, the commands of God are rooted in the essence of who God is. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, after God says this, he proceeds to give the Ten Commandments. And it's important for you to know that the, the Ten Commandments serve as an outline or a summary for the rest of the law and reflect the fundamental ethic by which God desires human beings to live. It's important. Therefore, the Ten Commandments are still relevant for us today. 
Our kids are going to start memorizing them, and I'm going to challenge you to start memorizing the Ten Commandments because they are still relevant and applicable to you today. The Ten Commandments can be divided into four sections. God's exclusive claims for himself in Commandments 1, and, one 2, and 3. Then God's basic institutions, 4 and 5, which, which talk about Sabbath, rest, and, and family. And then Commandments 6 and 7 talk about the human obligations. There shall be no murder. There shall be no adultery. And then social obligations, 8, 9, and 10. No lying, no covenant. Each of these reflect the essence of God's heart, but in different realms. Commands 1, 2, and 3 express how, address how humans are to respond to God. 4 and 5 identify how they are to respond to God's plan for life. 6 and 7 explain how humans are to interact with each other. And, and 8, 9, and 10 identify fundamental requirements for, success, for, success, for society to exist. And remember that each of these commands is established upon the reality of who God is, the sovereign. Therefore, they are perpetually binding moral commands. Forever binding on you. The commands are rooted in the very character and essence of God. In other words, they are fundamental to the created order. Like no other laws of the universe, they govern our existence and survival. The, the law of God provides the basic framework that God has designed for life. God established what is right and what is wrong. The definition of morality is given to us by God and God himself. And our agreement with his law or with the cultural norms surrounding his law do not alter whether or not it is right, what is right, and what is wrong. No matter what culture says and how culture morphs or how you feel about things or what these things say, it doesn't change what is right and wrong. Missio Day Church, hear this. It's really important for us to understand this because we have nearly lost this in our culture. And we are starting to lose it even in evangelical Christianity. What do I mean? Well, our postmodern culture is convinced, and maybe this is true of you, that there are no real and absolute standards for truth outside of ourselves. I decide what is true. In other words, there is a standard, but it is what I think, what I feel, what I experience. And what I do, I win. For instance, just think how culturally normal it is to, to take the Lord's name in vain. Right? Or, or to covet something. Think how typical it is to assume that the legal system, the government or a person is trying to sell you something, that that person is lying. We, we just assume that anymore, right? And when it comes to sexuality, it is viewed as weird or silly for a person to remain sexually chaste or for sex to be reserved only for two people in covenantal marriage. It's weird. Are you serious? 
but I still have to say more because that, it's, it's not clear enough for today. We have the re, a redefinition of marriage such as I have to say that God's design for sexuality and the family involves a man and a woman. Culture says what? It is open. It used to be that the main categories for our culture were men and women. But there seems to be a new category. And the new category is gay and straight. Those are our categories now. I was reading an article recently which said that, quote, as a society, we were conditioned to believe our categories of sexuality and gender are rigid and, absolutely, or, and absolute. But we forget how constructed and even arbitrary those categories can be. In one sentence, the author summarized what I hear a lot, namely that love, acceptance, and your real identity are what really matters, not what God has to say. Some of you know someone who really thinks that way, and maybe you really think that. Part of the challenge is that, is that I want you to understand from the depth of my soul, my heart, is that I'm not suggesting that you aren't loved or that person isn't loved or, or valued. We all have struggles that we, we go through in our life. You may really be struggling with who you are, what your identity is, or, or what is attractive to you. And without sounding judgmental, I just want you to understand that we don't get to set the rules for morality, even sexuality. It's not for us to decide. It has been decided. Our feelings, our emotions, and our desires do not determine the boundary markers of life. Let me say it again. Our feelings, our emotions, and our desires do not determine the boundary markers for life. God does. Why? Because he's God. God defines what is right and wrong because he is God. And the willful violation of his way of living is a symptom of a much bigger issue. Our desire to run our own lives. Our desire to be God. That is the root issue for any desire or action outside of his law. We want to be God. But it is not just an issue about the redefinition of marriage and same-sex attraction. This, this, relates to, this relates to why, despite our culture tell, what they tell you, sexual activity outside of marriage, lying, coveting, any violation of God's law is a rebellious end run. It's rebellious. So it's easy for our hearts to convince ourselves that we are the exception. I'm the exception to the rule. That we have needs. That there's a justification for this. It makes sense, doesn't it? I, I, I'm, I'm the exception here. 
Or listen, we just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. And this makes me happy. But I'm telling you that you, those choices will turn out badly. And at the time, they may feel so right, but you are giving away part of your soul. Whether it's lying, coveting, stealing, you're giving away part of your soul, and you might not even be aware of it because you are so blinded. Every path that is outside of God's path leads to internal or external destruction. And there seems that our, it seems that our culture slips farther and farther away from the biblical ethic, and we need to be reminded about who God is, who we are, and what is required. God can say, you shall have no other gods before me, because he is the only God. And God makes this command not just because it is right, but also because everything else is bad. So what's the hope? Right? We, we live in this culture, in this time. You're, you're finding, you're going, oh, crap. I'm stuck. He's nailed me. I'm up against a wall. What do I do with this? There's no hope. This is who I am. Right? I, I'm stuck in this place. God's holy. I'm sinful. I, God's amazing. I suck. I'm caught in this sin and God sees it. I'm not sure I went out of this sin, but God says I've got to. What do I do? Is there any hope for me? God gave us the law for a specific reason. The Apostle Paul said that the law was designed to lead us to Christ. That's its purpose. In other words, the law highlights the, the beauty of God's holiness and the impossibility of our complete obedience. It highlights that. And so do you know what that means? It means that if you are here today and that you are struggling under the failures of your past or the, the struggles and failures of your present, there is hope for you. There's hope. It means that God's people are always comprised of broken people who can't do it. And it starts with me. And you hear that even with the Apostle Paul who calls, calls himself the, the chief of sinners. The guy who wrote the vast majority of the New Testament says, I'm the chief of sinners. The people of God are fundamentally those who come to the end of themselves. I've come to the end of myself. And the solution is this. The solution is to embrace your brokenness instead of trying to justify it, figure it out, or redefine it. Embrace it. The remedy is to acknowledge, I'm not like you, God. I need your help. This is my brokenness. I need your help. And it is the provision of the sacrifice of his son that changes you. In Jesus, God wipes away your guilt. He completely forgives you. He completely welcomes you into his family. He considers you as though you have completely obeyed the law. And there's more. 
There's more. He puts the spirit of Christ in you such that when you read the Ten Commandments and you hear that God is not like you or when you hear that God has set the rules, it no longer makes you mad. In fact, it makes you extremely glad and grateful and worshipful. And out of the joy of God's deliverance, you see the God-defined boundaries here in life. And they make sense. And they're good. Why? Ultimately, because you know that God is not like you and he is out for your good. And that, folks, is good news. So this morning, we're, we're going to be breaking bread together. We're, we're going to be coming. You've, you've heard the gospel, the good news. You've been reminded of this good news of what Jesus has done for you, that God is other. We are this. And there, there is hope in Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of that again. And we come to this table. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives very clear instructions. We need to be able, to, when we come, to come with a clean conscience before God where we confess our sins and we understand his otherness and our brokenness and we embrace the gospel and we cling unto him again for he alone can deliver us today. We're nourished by that. We're fed by that good news as, as we eat bread and we're nourished, we're nourished by the gospel. But it requires us to confess To identify, again, God, this is an area of my life where I need your strength. And I confess my sins before you, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive me today, again, and heal me and provide me the strength more and more, day by day, to help me die to sin and live to righteousness. I want to encourage you. Do not rush to this table. In fact, whoever is going to be serving communion, take your time today. Confess your sins and be honest. And maybe it's you need to confess your sins to the one that you're sitting next to. A spouse, a son, a daughter, a friend. Maybe you need to get up Turn your cell phone on because it should be off right now and walk out the door and just say, hey, I, I got to confess something to you. I, I have totally broke our relationship. I have done this. I've taken what is not mine. I've hurt you, a precious gift of God. We're doing this and this is, I, I sense that God is saying that we're, we're living unfaithfully in this way or that way. And maybe even take a moment to pray. And then come up with joyful hearts. Having embraced the gospel. Knowing that God feeds you and sustains you with his word. And when you hear the body of Christ broken for you, you can say, thanks be to God. The blood of Christ poured out for you, you can say, amen.
meaning it. So let's pray.